You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, well, good morning, City Church. Uh, My name is Zach, and I'm the City Groups Director here. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, As Rachel said earlier, we are currently in the second week of a new sermon series called Christmas in July. So for four weeks we're looking at four amazing gifts that God gives us after we find salvation in Jesus Christ. And as we were um, kind of planning this series, our, our overarching hope would that, uh, that this would be a, a very encouraging series uh, for you um, as we're going to dive into those four gifts, like I said earlier, because of God's great love for us. So today we're going to be diving in and looking at the gift of adoption into the family of God and the community that we are given as a result of this adoption, right? The community that we find in the body of Christ as a result of being brought into the family of God is such a great gift, but it's also one that maybe we oftentimes overlook or maybe take for granted or struggle to pursue, struggle to use, but we know from Scripture And and probably uh, many of us know from personal experience that Christian community is necessary for growth, for spiritual protection, for mutual encouragement in the gospel as we seek to live the gospel in our daily lives. I remember about one year ago, a little over a year ago when my son was born, I was on uh, paternity leave. And uh, I was, you know, in the middle of like the 3 a.m. feedings and the 5 a.m. feedings. And I was trying to find something to watch uh, on Netflix. And I stumbled upon this show and the show was called Alone. And it probably hit me last night. It probably caught my eye because that's how you feel at 3 a.m. when you have a crying infant. But the show, it, its premise is it, it follows 10 individual survival experts and they drop these survival experts by themselves, isolated in the wilderness, and their goal is to survive as long as possible while only using a few things that they can bring from home beforehand. So with the exception of, of what they call uh, medical check-ins, these survivalists, these people, are, are isolated from each other, from all other humans, no human interaction. And they can do what, what they call tap out at any time, means that like, they wave the white flag, they, they, they're done with it. But the kicker is that they don't, they don't survive to a day, they just have to out-survive the other nine contestants. So they have no clue the status of any of the other survivalists out there, and the one who ever just remains the longest, so each season is different, they get a, a big money prize. It's a very interesting show, I liked it a lot. Uh, I think I was forced to like it, but I liked it a lot. But I really do think that the show, whether it was on purpose or accident, it exposes an innate need that humans have in all of our lives, and that is community. And I say that because my favorite character, character, survivalist, my favorite survivalist on the season that I watched was a, a hunting guide and survivalist from Tennessee is a shocker there. But within the first four days on the show, he had an insulated log cabin. He had hunted, captured, trapped enough food that he estimated would survive 30 days on. 
He had all these tools necessary. He was good to go. He was so confident that he would be the last survivor. And I love this. It's like day 15 or something in the show. He got so bored that he, they're in Alaska. He cleared out this lane and started carving bowling pins and a bowling ball because he's like, when I get bored, I can just bowl. Like all the other contestants are like eating mushrooms and plants and stuff. And he's carving out this bowling ball set. He had all these survival tools necessary to win. But as the days continued, they would do like video blogs with the GoPro As the days continued, he started talking more and more about his family, about his kids, about his friends, and how he missed them. And then it started to turn for him. He said, I don't even know if this money's worth it. And despite what I think being the front runner of the show, he was the very first one to tap out. And he wanted to go home because he said, the money, the accomplishment, the recognition by my peers, the prestige from winning this show, it wasn't worth being away from my family and friends, his community. So I continued to watch the show, and what I found so interesting is that out of the nine contestants to tap out, only one of them did so because of a medical emergency. The other seven tapped out because of loneliness, because of severe depression due to lack of being around their daily community and loved ones. And, and we can conclude, and I believe that people have this God-given longing, right, for intimate community. And we were made by God for community. We all have this sense of wanting to belong or experience being at home around people who love and care for us. But community in and of itself That's not just exclusive to Christianity, right? It's not just a community isn't just between Christians. I mean, we can find community in all aspects of our lives, in our everyday lives, right? Saturday uh, at Doak in the fall, extreme sense of community. Sports teams, clubs we're a part of, gyms we're a part of and go to, neighborhoods we live in. We find community everywhere in our life, but there's one community that's essential for the Christian. There's one community that's life-giving, that finds its roots in the redemption found at the cross, one that's unique to the Christian, and that's Christian community. And so this morning, we're going to answer three questions that are going to help us understand this family, this community that we find from being a part of God's family. We're going to look at theological significance, its structure, its importance, what it looks like, how do we fit in. And the three questions will be on the screen in a little bit, but I'll just go over them real quick. The first question is, well, when does the adoption into the family of God happen? And what are its implications for the believer? The second question is, well, what does this family look like? And the third is, why is this Christian community crucial for our spiritual growth and protection? So let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we get to study your word and dive into your word. God, we pray that you would be with us uh, in these next few minutes as we talk about the gift of being a part of your family, the gift of community that comes from that. I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be pushed to be more involved in this community. Uh, Be with me as 
<clears throat> I share what you have given me. Uh, Lord, we love you and thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. So when we look in, at the adoption, right, into the family of God, we can actually go back to the passage of Scripture that Pastor Dean walked us through last week, which is Ephesians 1. And honestly, we could reference him, we probably will reference this chapter every week in the series because it does such a great job of teaching a lot of different theological truths about gifts that we are given. But if you remember in this uh, letter uh, in Ephesians, Paul takes some time explaining what this adoption looks like when it happens, which will help answer the first question, which is, when does the adoption into the family of God happen? And what are the implications for the believer? Let's go back and look at Ephesians 1 starting in verse 5, and we're going to go 5, 6, and 7. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 5. He, God, predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, through Jesus' blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So as we looked at last week, and, and now Ephesians 1 tells us that we are adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. So how are we adopted? It's through Jesus. Not our work, but through Jesus' work on the cross in our place. And Scripture says when you believe that Jesus is God's Son and He died in your place and you put your faith in Him, it says we are saved, right? And right here, we are brought in, adopted as sons and daughters of God. And we find the redemption through Jesus' blood. We find forgiveness of sins through Jesus' blood and God's grace towards us. And I think this is an amazing truth as we think about our status as God's children, a part of God's family, right? That we Christians have been redeemed, have been forgiven from our rebellion against God and made a new creation in the eyes of God through Jesus. And not only that, but as we read in verse five, it was God's will it was God's will for this to happen. He delights in doing this. He delights in bringing people into his family. It's not this begrudging act or he has to or, uh, yeah, whatever, you're good. Just like don't let it happen again or whatever. No, he finds pleasure in this forgiveness. Why does he find pleasure? Well, it tells us right here again. Because it opens our eyes to his goodness and it turns our praise to him. And he's glorified through this. He's glorified through the act of forgiveness. And I think it's also important when looking at the forgiveness and redemption that we find in Christ as Christians to also understand kind of the flip side, what we are forgiven from and our status before this salvation takes place. And I've heard it said before, and, and I truly believe it, 
in our evangelistic efforts, talking to people about their faith, one of the hardest obstacles to overcome. And it really is the bedrock to how we understand Christ's work on the cross and its implication for our life is realizing the need to be saved. That we need to be saved. That sin isn't just a small mistake that, you know, we just missed the mark this time, but I'm going to do better next time. But it's a serious offense against God. Like one sin is worthy of eternity apart from God. So when we come to the understanding that we sinners need a Savior, that we need to be saved from our sin, Jesus' work on the cross becomes that much more impactful, right, in the way we view our relationship with God. And Ephesians 2 really dives into our status pre- and post-salvation and the implications. It's a great scripture to read and reflect on, but I used that scripture last time I preached, so I can't do it again. But there are many good scriptures like that. So we can go to 1 Peter 2 to look at this implication. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9, going to 10, says, but you, so Christians, followers of Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It said, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. It said, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here, the author, Peter, compares, right, our status pre and post-salvation, and he confirms our status as God's people, right? He says that we are a chosen race. I love that, chosen race, not randomly picked, not by accident, but chosen by God. It's intentional. It's personal. It's a personal relationship. And then he describes God's family in a couple different ways, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, like God's children are his possession. So why does Peter kind of give us all of these different definitions of our status in God's family? It tells us right here, and then we read it again in Ephesians earlier, so that we proclaim the praises of God, who did what? Who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Where do our praises go? They go to God. Why do they go to God? Verse 10 says once, right, once before God called you into his marvelous light, once you weren't even a people. You were alone. You had not received mercy. Then there's two huge words there, right? But now, once you were like that, not anymore, right? But now you are God's people and you have received mercy. Christians, believers, those who have put their trust and faith in Jesus have been forgiven and then brought into the family of God. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, once again, we talked about last week. I've referenced last week like a hundred times. If you haven't listened to it, it was a fantastic sermon. I strongly encourage you to do. But last week, we hit on 
Ephesians 1 tells us that we can be confident in our status before God, right? Our right standing, our righteousness is secure in Jesus. No matter how tempted we are to maybe believe that we have to add to the work of Jesus for salvation security, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Paul says this in Romans, it's a very popular verse, Romans 8, 38, he says, hey, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that, and he goes and lists a bunch of different things, neither death nor life, angels or demons, things present or things to come, no powers, no height or depth, and then he kind of gives this blanket statement, right, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it almost seems like reading this that Paul is, he's like trying to find something to answer the question, what can separate us from God's love? But he can't because the truth is that there is nothing created that can override what the creator instills, right? And adoption into the family of God is done by God himself and is permanent. And we can praise God for the promise of this salvation security. And ultimately, we know that this security is only made possible by the steadfast, enduring, never-ending love of God. And Professor Daniel B. Wallace puts it like this. I love this quote. He says, believers do not continue in their faith by their own strength. He says, rather, each member of the Trinity is at work to preserve them. Our salvation completely depends on the work of Jesus, not our own merit. Genuine Christians also continue in the faith because they were sealed by the Holy Spirit as a down payment for the blessing promised by God, which includes eternal life. Then finally, true believers continue to hear the Lord's voice and follow him meaning they will continue in the faith and in good works. So to answer the question, when does this adoption into God's family take place and what are its implications in the believer's life? Well, it takes place when we put our faith in Jesus and the implications like we read about in 1 Peter 2 is that, well, before that, we were not a people. We had not been shown mercy We were dead in our sins, but after this adoption, we are now God's chosen people, forgiven of our sins, adopted into the family of God, and we know that this adoption is permanent. So now that we know that, you know, what it takes to become part of God's family to be adopted and what that looks like, the second question we're going to look at this morning is, well, now we're adopted in this family. What does this family look like? What does this community look like? We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12 to help answer this, and we're going to be skipping around, so it may just be easier to follow along in the screen. But where we start, the heading of this section, I think, just like answers it right off uh, the bat. It says, unity yet diversity in the body. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. It says, for just as the body is one, It has many parts, so he's talking, he's using an illustration of the human body here. Just as the body is one 
and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. It says, for we all were baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews, Greeks, whether slaves or free, so he's talking about everyone, we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. Verse 18, as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just how he wanted. There it is again, intentionality. God has arranged it. He has placed it. Verse 19, and if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Verse 24, instead, God has put together the body, giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And then he says, now you, Christians, are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Paul here in this text is emphasizing unity in diversity, right? Many gifts, many different kinds of people, many different backgrounds, but there's one spirit who gives those gifts, and that is in every member of the body, the church, right? The church, the body of Christ, that is the family that we are adopted into, and it's comprised of individual members who are all united through the work of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? It says right here in 1 Corinthians, we are unique individuals tied together by the gospel. And that gospel is our strongest source of unity together. And I love it that Paul uses the human body as an example right, of being unique individuals in the body of Christ because just as the human body needs all of its parts to function properly, the body of Christ needs all of its parts. Each member of the church serves a unique purpose. Each spiritual gift is needed for the body of Christ to function properly. And if you've been here on a Sunday morning within the past calendar year, you know that we're in the middle of going through the book of Acts, We're kind of taking a break this month, and then we're going to jump back into the book of Acts. But through that narrative, we've seen some really cool things, right? We see the early church starting and forming and growing. We're seeing missionaries being sent out, seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. We're seeing churches be planted. And Acts, well, the, the author, Luke, he sometimes gives us this really cool, like, window to look through as we read to see how the early church functioned. In some cases, it was examples of like, don't do that, like these guys said, please don't do that. But in a lot of cases, it, it, it gives us an example of how to be a healthy body of believers. It should encourage us, shows us things that we strive for. And Acts 2 is one of those instances, and we're not going to read it because it's a longer passage, but Acts 2 at the end it kind of gives us some practicality to how the body of Christ works, how the church functions together. I'm just going to read a list of things that are at the end of Acts 2 that gives us a glimpse of this. It says the church devoted themselves to teaching. We do, a lot of, we do, mo- we do all of these things, actually, which is encouraging. Right? They devoted themselves to teaching. 
The church devotes themselves to fellowship, to prayer together, to meals, to holding all things in common, right? Scripture and the gospel, helping each other out financially, regularly meeting together, and praising God together. And so this family, right, this church is comprised, is made up of people who love God and then love others. Sometimes that looks like laying down small differences for the sake of unity. Uh, It looks like serving because Christ first served us. I mean, I can think of, uh, gosh, just in my life, uh, even in the last five years, tons of different times where the church, members of City Church, the church that I am a part of, members of City Church, have cared for me and my wife, my son, have served us, were so generous with us, have prayed for us, encouraged us. I bet many of you sitting here can think of times where the church has done the same, where members of the church have done the same, have very similar stories. And the truth is that this family that we're adopted into, right, the body of Christ is so unique in how it functions. It's unlike any other community we could find ourselves in. And I believe that not only do we need the church, Christians, do we need the church, but the church needs us. Since we are individual members brought in intentionally by God and have unique gifts given to us intentionally by the Holy Spirit to be a part of this body. So to answer the second question, what does the family of God look like? Well, it's, it's the church, right? It's the local church. It's Christians unified together around the gospel, working together to take the gospel to the world or, or to live out the Great Commission. And in the meantime, building up fellow Christians. So finally, our third question. So the first question, when does this adoption happen? What happens at salvation? What are its implications? We were once not a people without mercy. Now after adoption, we are people given mercy, given forgiveness into this family. What does the family look like? The family is the body of Christ. It's the local church. Unique individuals united in the gospel. Okay, we know that. We know that. Third question, well, why is this Christian community crucial for our spiritual growth and protection? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 25. Verse 23, it says, Let us, the church, Christians, hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful, and let us then consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more. So doing it even more as you see the day approaching. We're commanded here as Christians to hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. What does that mean? Right? Our hope the Christian, the believer's hope that we hold on to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus was sent down 
by God from heaven on a saving mission. He lives a perfect life, regardless, dies a death in our place. Why did he do that? To pay the penalty for his people's sins. Then it says, if we put our faith in Jesus and follow him, we are given a new life. We are made a new creation. And we know that Jesus went to the grave, defeated death and sin, was risen from the grave, ascended into heaven with the promise that we can believe wholeheartedly that he will come back and make all things new. That is our hope. That is the believer's hope. And the author of Hebrews here is pleading with the reader, with us this morning, to not waver when confronted with opposition from the world, opposition to our hope, opposition to the gospel. And we know that we will have opposition. Many of us probably feel that tension on a daily basis, and it's hard not to waver. I mean, the truth is, if we're honest, we probably, we probably all have wavered. Right? There's been times in our lives where we shrink back when we should stand firm. Keep our mouths closed when we should speak up. Not hold on to the confession of our hope. And the reason is, is because we are not perfect people. Right? We're not perfect. We fall short. We have a Father that forgives, and we can rest in that. We have security in our salvation, and we can rest in that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek every opportunity to hold on to the faith, to hold on to correct doctrine, to hold on to correct theology, to hold on to the, to the true meaning of Scripture, to hold on to our personal testimony. And we know it's hard at times. The author of Hebrews knew, knew it was hard at times as well. And that's why he reminds us as we keep on reading of this tool that God has given us to help us hold fast. Right? And that tool is each other. Right? That tool is Christian community. Because he says we are to look out for each other, to spur each other on in love and good works, encourage each other to stay rooted in our faith as we seek out to live out uh, the gospel in our everyday lives. The author of Hebrews says, hey, look out for each other. I mean, think of a time, and I'm sure we've all felt this, where maybe you have felt like alone or isolated as like the only Christian, right, on, on your staff, the only Christian in the office, the only Christian maybe in your class, on your team, it's lonely. It's discouraging. And then you discover, oh, there's a fellow believer that I didn't know before. I mean, how quickly does that encourage you? It kind of gives you new life because there's so much joy in knowing that there are Christians that are serious about their faith that are standing side by side with you, encouraging you, spurring you along as you try to uh, seek to follow Jesus every day. Then we continue reading in the Hebrews right here, and Hebrews gives us a warning, almost like a, a pitfall to avoid. So he's saying, hold on to the confession of your hope without wavering, looking out for one another, spurring each other on to love and good works. And then verse 25, he says, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. 
And we can, we can read this passage and uh, rightfully assume that some believers in the church, the early church or the, the, the audience that he's writing to, had become maybe just too busy in their life. I mean, they're people. They had jobs. They had families. Other things became a priority. They joined the church. They loved it. They're in fellowship. And then things got busy. And they said, well, you know what? I'm going to put this to the side. And I'm going to neglect meeting together. I'm going to make a habit of it. And I'm going to start doing all these other things. And what can we conclude happened to those people based on the verse before is that they wavered. Is that they wavered. He's saying, don't waver. Hold on. There were people that neglected meeting together and made a habit of it. They are wavering. And he calls out this uh, cultural kind of issue or a Christian culture issue or phenomenon. Well, it might not actually be a phenomenon because it's apparently happening even here with the early believers and that Christian cultural issue is the loss of priority that the local church has in the life of Christians, right? The local church, we've talked about it, the body of believers, the community that God has brought us into is so important for your spiritual health, like Hebrews just said. There's no substitutions. There can't be substitutions for it. I don't care what that country song says, where like it says you can have you know church at on the boat and the deer stand at the beach on the baseball field. No, no. There are no substitutions for the local church. There can't be for our spiritual health. Right? Gathering together, worshiping together, praying together, reading scripture together. What we are doing this morning, what thousands and thousands of churches across the world are doing this morning, gathering together as a body of Christ, it's critical for both our individual, your individual walk with the Lord and the furthering of the gospel. I saw a tweet from a pastor in Nashville that summarizes the importance of this perfectly. The tweet said, if the person or if the people of the church do not have Christian community, our isolation will lead to failure in the task at hand, which is sharing the gospel, as well it will lead to destruction as we are picked off by our adversary, Satan. And we know from Scripture that Satan will do everything in his power to isolate the Christian from community. He does this in a lot of different ways. Maybe it's uh, convincing us that we have higher priority things going on in our life and we'll just get back to church once I handle A, B, C, D, E. Maybe it's giving you a fear of being vulnerable because of being burned by a church, not the church, a church in the past. Maybe it's telling us that past shame or guilt that you are carrying doesn't qualify you for Christian community. And if you've currently uh, have those thoughts or have had those thoughts in the past, I want you to hear this. Think about what we just talked about. If you are in Christ, your salvation is secure. And there is nothing you can do that can erase your name from the book of life. And if you believe that, then there is nothing you can do that would bar you from Christian community, from the body of Christ. 
There's no wrongdoing. There's no amount of time in between visits. There is no shame or guilt that you may feel or carry can ever supersede the love that God has for his people and the community that he provides. And here at City Church, we strive to have many different avenues for community. And our hope and our goal is that every person who calls City Church home is in community. So here's the plea right here. If you are not, if you are not in any type of community, I'd love to invite you to go to the Connect Desk after the service. Learn more about what it looks like to join in this community that God has brought us each individually into here at City Church. Right, because the family right, and the community that we are gifted by God is such a precious gift. To fit the series, it's greater than any of your favorite Christmas gifts you've ever received. Mine was a Space Jam uh, towel. I love that thing. But this is way better than that. Because the family of Christ, it encourages you, it spurs you on. It helps you heal. It cares for you. But ultimately, it points us to Christ, right, and to God's glory. So let's end our time this morning with the quote that sums all this up from a book called Strange New World by Carl Truman. And it says, the church needs to be the strongest community to which every believer belongs to. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for our time together this morning uh, to study your word, to to sing praises to your name. God, I thank you for the the community, the family that you have given us here at City Church. And I pray that uh, we would glorify you ultimately through this community, that we would grow together in you. God, that we would do like the scripture calls us to do and spur each other on and love and good works and encourage each other and care for each other and pick each other up. I pray, God, that you would bring many more people into this community. And God, that ultimately you would be glorified through that. We thank you so much for your son and his work on the cross. Amen.